Um, the first reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, and it's found on page 1030 of your Bible. And it's, no, 1031, sorry. It starts at verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, (laughs) the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now our reading continues from Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They came from every village in Galilee, and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisee and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Stephen. And my welcome to Colin. I'm John. And if you are visiting, looking for a new church home, uh, it's great to have you along. Uh, some of you will know, most of you will know, this is, uh, at this stage, the second last talk sermon I'll give you. So uh, um, it's, uh, I was really pleased when it uh, landed on this passage before. Uh, now, who's heard this passage before? Who, or who's heard some of the stories out of this? You know, stick your hands up. Let's have a look. They're reasonably familiar. Now, I don't know if you know, uh, some of you... Um, my eldest daughter Aisha, uh, I think it's over eight times that she's read the whole Harry Potter series from beginning to end. And she says, oh, but you just keep discovering new things, you know, the connections and, and all these sorts of things. So um, I'm not sure how many times some of us have heard some of these passages. One of the, uh, the dangers I find is um, we can uh, sit loose and um, yeah, to, to texts that are familiar to us. Uh, and hence, it's a great opportunity for us to look afresh uh, and uh, see what wonderful truths are here for us. So uh, that's my hope and prayer this morning. Now, um, most of you know that um, the last few weeks I've sort of got around and uh, managed to visit a lot of people, uh, talk to everyone on the phone to chat through the reasons for our leaving uh, and how we, we came to that decision. God brought us to that decision. Uh, one of the last um, households I had the privilege of visiting and spending an hour with was with Dean and Rhonda down there in Glenelg. And uh, they'd already sort of gotten the heads up that things were afoot. Uh, and, and so they'd already thought a little bit about what they wanted to ask me and, and some of the questions they had. So after chattering about how God had brought us to this decision for a bit, uh, Dean, um, in his usual non-direct way, changed tact. Uh, now, John... I need to be honest, uh, this is a paraphrase, and I've checked with, with, uh, with Dean. He knows uh, what, I'm, what I'm sharing this morning. Now, John, I need to be honest and say, early on, we used to come to Trinity Bay because of young cricket, which is their nickname for Jamie. Um, but now we want to come because we like it. Uh, we like the people here, uh, and we like learning from the Bible. Uh, and certainly the last couple of years, watching... Uh, 
people like Dean uh, get into the Bible, uh, discover the truth of Jesus for their lives, uh, the grace of God uh, for their life. It really captures, for me, what's really been the absolute highlight of the last 11 years, I think, which is just that great privilege um, of seeing people wrestle with God's word and God kindly leading into the truth of Jesus, uh, the truth of their own sin, and them just being overrun by the grace and the forgiveness of God. It's, it just never fails to bore me. Uh, but I do digress, so back to my conversation with sitting in the lounge room with Dean and Rhonda, enjoying amazing uh, cake and, and cups of tea. Now, John, as you know, we used to go to another church uh, for a long time before coming to Trinity Bay. And a big difference I noticed when we started coming to Trinity Bay is how you were always talking about getting the word out, getting the word out. And now that I've started reading the Bible myself, this idea of getting the word out, it, well, it just seems to be everywhere in the Bible. And, John, I, why didn't I ever hear that at my old church? I just I can't really remember the, the minister saying, you know, we need to be getting the word out. But why is that? Well, why, are, um, why aren't all churches on about getting the word out? And I reckon that's a good question. And it's a question that takes us to the heart uh, of this part of Luke's gospel. Um, and really the, the key takeaway message uh, from chapters 4 through to 6. Uh, Luke wrote his gospel to give his readers confidence that getting the word out uh, about Jesus, it, it's actually the heart, it's the priority of Jesus and his mission. Uh, and last week, for a really uh, a great talk from Colin, uh, we learnt that from Luke chapter 4, that when Jesus went public in his uh, hometown, uh, he's in the synagogue, he stands up, he reads out a part of God's word from Isaiah chapter 61 uh, and claims that he is God's anointed, he's God's anointed uh, to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim the good news to the poor. Uh, so that text is just back there in, uh, in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because... He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now that phrase, to proclaim good news, uh, in the original language, it's actually just one word. It's the one word we get evangelical from. It's actually the one word that we get gospel from. Uh, or good news. Christianity is about good news. It's about the gospel. And according to Jesus, with his arrival, the gospel or good news of God's kingdom had arrived in him uh, and had arrived for poor people, uh, that poor people everywhere need to be gospeled, according to Jesus. You, Possibly over the years heard me use turning nouns into verbs. Um, one of my commonest nouns I turn into verbs is this word gospel or gospeled. Uh, because that's in essence what Jesus is saying from this text. Poor people need to be gospeled. And last week, Colin very helpfully um, showed us from the Bible that in the Bible, when you read the word poor, uh, we naturally think of maybe people, you know, um, selling magazines in Runnell Mall or just homeless people. Uh, that's actually not what the Bible means by poor. 
Uh, the word actually is the word for beggar or beggarly. And what's of interest is that in the Old Testament, God uses this very description, this very word, the poor, to describe Old Testament Israel, who are in exile under the judgment of God. And so if you want to, uh, what I'm trying to say is that this word poor or poor people, as Colin said last week, it's a theologically loaded word. It's used by God to describe any human being who is not in right relationship with God, who's in exile from God, if you like, and needs to be saved back into right relationship with God. And Jesus' stunning claim is that he alone has the authority or the power to save spiritually impoverished people back into right relationship with God. That's why just we started that reading at the end of Luke chapter 4, um, uh, just picking up um, Jesus' time uh, in a town called Capernaum. Uh, he's been healing. People have been bringing uh, sick people to him, and there's a lot of them. They've got so many needs. Uh, but Jesus' response, it seems really quite callous and uncaring to the people who's saying, hey, Jesus, why don't you set up a, you know, your base for ministry here? Why don't you set up a centre f- f- for ministry? Because look, there's a lot of need here. Um, and Jesus' sort of seemingly callous and uncaring reply is, now I must proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now if you're looking for uh, a sentence from Jesus himself that sums up his mission, that's it. That's it. Uh, I must proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to other towns also, that is why I was sent. That little word must When you ever see that in Luke, it's usually translating a little three-letter word, uh, D-E-I, day, uh, that's called a divine necessity. That is, uh, it's the strongest intentional word possible. A writer, using the original Greek, could use to describe um, something that must take place. It's like, you know, I absolutely have no choice in this. I'm thoroughly obligated. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God's arrival in me. That's how Jesus understood the priority of his own mission. The word must get out, uh, even if it must trump any other economic or social or physical need. Uh, The word must be preached. It should trump any other priority. And this explains why we have at the beginning of Luke 5, uh, Luke reports... Jesus is in a new location. And notice what's going on there. We're told that the people were crowding around Jesus and doing what? Listening to the word of God. And the word of God in Luke and in the book of Acts uh, is a very important idea, very important phrase. It brings us to the first of four uh, points um, to sort of summarise the four episodes in this chapter. The first one is that Luke begins uh, with Jesus' call of Simon, of James and John, their fishermen. And, and this first uh, part here, this passage, it gives us confidence that Jesus has the authority. He has the authority to save sinners, but also to summon them, to commission them into his service. And he does it through his word. So just, I just want us to show us the emphasis Luke has on the authority of Jesus' word in these first 11 verses. So verse 3. We've got uh, Jesus taught the people. He's sitting in Simon's boat. They're pressing on him so hard. So he's in Simon's boat. Uh, And then verse 4, Jesus directs Peter to head back out into deep water 
to put the nets down again. Verse 5, despite Peter being a professional fisherman, uh, he initially protests, um, been a long, hard, vain night of fishing. What does Peter reply? But at your word, I will let down the nets. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And what's the result in verses 6 and 7? From a night of empty nets to a day, uh, the completely wrong time to go fishing. You've suddenly got full nets. They're so full that they're ripping. Um, you've got two boats that are so full, they're almost sinking. Luke's point's very simple. It just illustrates the power of Jesus' word to transform emptiness into fullness for any who will submit to Jesus' word. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Uh, it's actually not a word to fishermen, okay? So there might be some here about to go and put their boats in. Um, uh, verse 9 records the amazement and joy of Peter. But also we notice Luke lists the names of James and John, some of the other fishermen there. And of course, there are three people who become uh, designated apostles of Jesus, eyewitnesses of Jesus. But I want us to notice something else. Notice Peter's response um, to the full nets. That it's only Peter, we're told, who realises the authority of the one who's standing in the boat. Uh, it's one of those Monty Python sort of pictures. Uh, Peter, Jesus standing in a boat full of fish that's sinking. And then suddenly Peter falls to his knees, suddenly convicted of his sin, convicted of his unworthiness to be in Jesus' presence. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Now, in the Bible, uh, when, uh, when God calls and commissions uh, all the greats, Moses, uh, Elijah, uh, Elisha, uh, these guys, uh, Isaiah, their call always involves uh, a contriteness and a confession of sin. Uh, like we see here, before they are commissioned um, into God's service. And I, it just, I guess raises a question uh, for each of us. Uh, can you still remember when you first experienced a deep conviction of your own sin? Uh, do you still, when you come to God's word and you pray, does it ever evoke in you a sense of unworthiness? of contriteness, of humility. Uh, for me, it was way back in 1992. Uh, I'd been invited along to Holy Trinity City. I'd walked in curious, a little nervous about what would happen. Uh, but 40 minutes later, uh, in the middle of a Bible talk, not unlike this one, I unexpectedly found myself wrestling with my own immorality, uh, my own sinfulness, that even though I had all these questions, didn't believe Jesus, you know, was God or, you know, that he'd risen from the dead, uh, that I was wrestling at that point with the idea that if Jesus was true, uh, then what I was reading here in the Bible, what I was hearing from the preacher was true of me up to that point, was true of my life, that I was a sinner. And that led me to uh, dig into the Bible some more, ask questions, uh, and just keep uh, uh, reading and exploring and asking questions until 
I could either walk away uh, or, or whatever. And it, several months later had me um, just utterly convicted of the truth of Jesus, the need of his forgiveness and crying out to become a Christian. But here we have um, Jesus himself. Uh, you know, what happens when you do that? What happens when you, you're convicted and you sort of you come before Jesus like that? I mean, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't leave Peter on his knees in the boat. Uh, Jesus' response to Peter's confession and contriteness is, don't be afraid. Uh, literally, fear not. It's a command. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And so genuine contrition and confession of sin to Jesus, it will always be met by Jesus with forgiveness and acceptance. We can know this. But I think this episode is here is to help us see that Peter is one of those poor sinners that Jesus talked about in his manifesto back in Luke 4. One of these poor sinners that Jesus has come to seek and to save. And I think here what we've got is a bit of a model of what the beginnings of saving faith in Jesus actually looks and sounds like. That if you really want to know and experience the deep, deep joy of God's forgiveness, uh, then it'll always involve, it has to involve, a genuine contrition and conviction of, and confession of your sin. But notice Jesus doesn't leave it there. Um, having been convicted by Jesus, Jesus now commissions Peter and James and John. Uh, finally, uh, we're, the whole point of this miracle being recorded by Luke uh, is, is revealed. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their nets up on shore, left everything and followed Jesus. So what's, what's going on here? Jesus is using the involvement of Peter, James and John in the miraculous catch of fish to teach these guys here how he intends to use them to save other sinners to enlist them into his service, to seek out and save sinners on his behalf. And one point of reflection here has to be that Jesus hasn't come to help you or me prosper in work. He's come to save you and to enlist you into his service. Uh, his desire is that his priority becomes our priority. Getting the word out at your workplace, getting the word out where you're studying... That is always his priority for all Christians everywhere. But the other thing we should just observe at this point that Luke's doing for us, he does it in Luke and Acts. Several times in Luke and Acts, Luke records the names of some of those people who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And so what we've got here at the beginning of chapter 5 is a record of how some, not all, of the 12 apostles of Jesus were called and commissioned eyewitnesses to what went on. And what this should does is, as a reader, uh, what Luke's trying to do is to give us confidence that we really can trust the historical reliability of Luke's gospel and what we're reading here. It should give us confidence and courage to act. To act. Well, that brings us to the second, uh, second um, a story we heard to do with a man with leprosy. Uh, we can have confidence that Jesus has the authority to overthrow the effects of sin, not just to save people from sin, but to actually re reverse and overthrow the effects of sin in our lives, and especially when he returns. Now, verse 12, so what have we got? Well, Jesus was in one of the towns. You've got a man coming along, uh, covered in leprosy, we're told. The word here, it's a play on words, okay? 
The word is literally full up. It's the same word used back talking about the nets that are full. Okay? To play on words. Uh, this man is full of leprosy. He sees Jesus. He falls down to his face to the ground and he begs him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, again, uh, leprosy was just one as a name used for a whole range of skin conditions uh, that were like leprosy in Jesus' day. Uh, again, what we've got here is we've got uh, empty nets, full nets. We've now got a man who's full up with this skin condition like leprosy. A human being who was a prisoner to the effects of living in a fallen world that is completely overrun by sin. To have any leprosy-like skin condition in the Bible uh, was to be an outcast. Uh, you were cut off from your family, cut off from friends and society. You weren't allowed to, to go and worship in the temple like others. Um, it was actually like having a death sentence. Uh, you were living, but actually you were socially dead. Living, but socially dead. So here's a man full of leprosy who is full of longing. Uh, he's just, he is desperate. He is desperate to be set free uh, from this disease um, and, and, and all the social stigma that's holding him captive. And he sees Jesus, falls his face to the ground, he begs him, he pleads with him. Again, the strongest possible word you can use. Uh, pleading with Jesus, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, just notice at this point what Jesus doesn't say or do. Notice how Jesus doesn't respond. He, he doesn't draw any parallel between this man's suffering and his sin. He doesn't say, look, mate, if you just stop sinning, you'll get better. You'll be healed. He doesn't say, oh, look, you've obviously got a faith problem. You need more faith. Jesus never makes that very clumsy and, can I say, very hurtful connection. Jesus' encounter with this man who was full of leprosy, it's Jesus encountering a, another poor sinner, again, who's captive to the effects of humanity's rebellion against God. A man living in a fallen world. And Luke's trying to show us that he's another poor sinner who needs to be released, needs to be set free from the effects of sin in this world. And so whatever hope this man has, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. Notice again, the leper, he gives no reason. He doesn't try to justify why Jesus should, um, should heal him, should you know, give him a break. You know, I've had a hard life, Jesus, now come on. Um, there's no justification. There's no money, no bartering. This guy has got nothing to give. He's beggarly. In his, in his poverty. All he does is he pleads desperately, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And so what does Jesus say and do in response? Uh, he reaches out his hand, he touches the man, I'm willing, be clean. One word, uh, I'm willing, be clean. He touches him. Why didn't he just heal him with a word? Uh, again, everything Jesus says and does is trying to teach us about who he is, his identity, his origin, and especially the authority that he, ha that he has, the power that he has. You see, according to the Old Testament law, for Jesus to touch this man or anything of this man's, his clothing, was to make himself ritually and spiritually unclean and barred from the temple and all these sorts of things, like a leper. Um, but instead, Luke reports, immediately this man who's full of 
leprosy is emptied of his leprosy. He's made clean, you see. And so you're going to get another mysterious exchange going on here. Um, He's making this man whole again. It's a snapshot of the power and the authority that Jesus has to completely overthrow the effects of sin in the world. Uh, The authority that Jesus has to come and fulfill the law completely. In fact, to surpass the law. The unique exchange of this miracle, it points us towards, of course, the greater exchange that Jesus came to make for this man and every human being who would come to Jesus. His life for ours, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Our substitute on the cross, our exchange. There is no more beautiful exchange than that cross. And of course, the application for us today, I think, hopefully by now, is obvious. Think about leprosy in the Bible. There are only two other people who have leprosy in the Bible. Anyone know who they are? Not a rhetorical question. Joel. Naaman. Who else? Yeah, well done. Good, Miriam. Aaron's wife, Miriam, in Numbers 12. Naaman the Syrian. And you can read about that in uh, 2 Kings 5. Both are healed by God. Now here is a man being healed by seemingly just a man. What's Jesus trying to teach about his identity and authority he has? Is there any wonder that Peter fell at the knees of this man when he realised whose presence he was in? But there's also an edgy challenge for us. If you were here last week, um, if you're not, have a read of Luke chapter 4. For the astute reader, Jesus has already compared the response of people in his hometown to the time of Elisha, the prophet, 700 years before Jesus, a time when everyone in Israel had given up believing in God. They had stopped taking God at his word, except for a pagan commander in Syria's army, whose name was Naaman, who came to Elisha and asked to be healed. And he said, go and wash yourself. The man obeys the word of God and was healed. And so I think this is here uh, as a foil to the unbelief that Jesus met in his hometown. Uh, Luke records this leper being healed to let us know that Jesus has come into a world that hasn't changed, a world that wants nothing to do with God or God's word, a world of unbelieving people. And of course, the question for us here this morning is, what sort of response is Jesus' word finding in your heart and head at the moment? See, as we heard, this man's heart, it's overrun with the joy of being set free of Jesus and his word. And he does, he disobeys Jesus. The first thing this man does is he disobeys Jesus. He doesn't stay silent. He runs off. He cannot keep his mouth shut telling people about what Jesus has done for him. Which brings us to the third episode. The third episode. And while we can have confidence that Jesus has authority to forgive the sins of any person who will come to him, Because it's another day, it's sometime in the future, Jesus is teaching. The house is packed, it's full of people. Again, Jesus' authority is emphasised right up the front. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Um, And who have we got on the front row? Well, we've got uh, all the tertiary educated people, the religious elite, uh, who um, have maybe heard through the leper about Jesus. And so they've come to check Jesus out, to authenticate him, who he is, where is he from. 
And as we heard, some desperate blokes, they come determined to get their paralysed mate to Jesus. They can't get in and so they go through the roof. Um, Such was their determined faith. And then Luke tells us Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. I wonder if you can see their faith. The biblical faith always has Jesus as the object. Always. It's always about getting to Jesus. Getting to God. Verse 20, Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, friend, literally man, your brother, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, and again, it's an absolute hand grenade that Jesus you know, rolls out into the middle um, uh, of, this, of this house. And, and like, what? Uh, it gets the, exactly the reaction it should get. Um, you've got a, a lot of university degrees there sitting in the front row. Very biblically literate people. Um, they know exactly what Jesus is claiming here. And they are really disturbed. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's the right question. It really is the right question. If Jesus is only a man. So what does Jesus want people there and now to know? Verse 24. Verse 24 is the key here. He wants us to know. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So it's great what Luke does. I mean, you don't have to guess at Jesus' mission. You don't have to guess what it is Jesus wants us to know. He wants us to know that he has the authority, that he's, uh, he takes an ancient title from hundreds of years earlier, uh, about one like a son of man who would come on clouds to the ancient of days, to God in heaven, and God would give this son of man all authority in heaven and on earth to judge all people at the end of time. Jesus is claiming to be this Son of Man, all authority to judge has been given to him. It's Jesus we're going to be standing in front of when we meet our maker. But notice the point that Jesus wants people on earth to know is that he's got the authority on earth now to do what? Forgive sins. To forgive sins so that people can be saved from that day. And not face judgment and wrath, but receive acceptance and eternal life with Jesus and his Father in heaven. And of course, both the healing the paralytic and forgiving the sins on behalf of God, they are both equally impossible things for anyone to do then or for us to do now. And so Jesus does what it is we can see, he does the obvious. He heals the paralytic with a word. He gets up, he's healed completely, fully, goes out rejoicing so that we will know that he really does have the authority to forgive your sin and my sin and the sin of anyone who will come to him completely. So what's the application for Luke's readers in this chapter? Well, it brings us to our fourth and last episode that Luke records. We can be confident that Jesus really has the authority. He has the authority Not just to call, but to command even the sickest and most vilest of sinners to repentance. And not just that, but to use them in his service in unimaginable ways. 
Verse 27, after this, Jesus went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Jesus said to him, follow me, leaving everything. He rose and followed him. The occupying Roman forces, uh, they contracted out all their tax collecting um, and they enlisted Jews to, t- uh, to, te- uh, to collect the tax from their own people. Uh, they had the very authority of Rome themselves to go out and collect that tax. If you didn't pay up, um, you had the local centurion and his mates coming around uh, to make you pay up. Uh, Rome had also given the tax collectors authority uh, to collect uh, a not-so-small commission for themselves on top of the tax. Um, thus, they were able to exhort their own countrymen um, for their own livelihood. And so tax collectors uh, in occupied um, Jewish territory were some of the wealthiest people going around. Uh, Jewish tax collectors were some of the most despised people, hated people. Uh, and spiritually unclean people because they hung out with pagan Romans. They were the worst of sinners. Why is this here? Well, I think at least three reasons. The first is, Levi is the very opposite of someone who is economically poor. This guy's not homeless. He lives in a palace. Which means the poor who Jesus have come to save cannot be the economically poor cannot be he's come to save any spiritually poor person uh, the levi's or the lepers that's really important for us it's why jesus says to the grumbling religious elite in verse 31 those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i've not come to call the righteous but sinners through repentance again jesus is telling us his mission. Now, their response to Jesus' word, of course, it couldn't be more opposite um, uh, to the other responses that we see, like Peter in the boat. You see, these guys are proud. And nothing blinds us to the truth of things in our lives more than pride. Isn't that right? Nothing gets us into trouble more in our relationships, at work or at home, than what? Our pride. The big takeaway here is how stunning Jesus' authority is to command the most unscrupulous and sickest of sinners to repentance. Now, I want us to notice something else in this last and fourth, fourth and last section. Uh, what's different to the other three? I wonder if you can pick it out. What's different? You see, unlike the previous three proofs or miracles of Jesus' authority to save sinners into his service, you notice there's no miracle here? There's no proof. Just the word of Jesus commanding Levi to leave everything, to follow him. To follow him. Uh, I was was in Sydney this week uh, for a couple of days. Uh, I stayed out with uh, Jamie and Aisha. Jamie started uh, Greek weeks at college. And it's hilarious. There are yellow pieces of manuscript pad all over the flat already with Greek words and parsing, you know, all this stuff he's got to learn. And I don't know if you ever tried to learn a language, but um, it was quite hilarious. It was all take me back. Um, but he's, see, what he's doing is he's learning 
some, we're learning things that, um, like this word here, this one Greek word here, follow me, um, that it can be sort of spelt different ways and it has a different meaning. Um, uh, you, could, you could sort of spell this in a way that sort of would give the word a feel like, you know, hey, Levi, mate, how you doing? Look, um, look if you're not doing anything at the moment, what are you just you come, come with me and, uh, you know, hang out with me for a bit. Uh, or there's the other spectrum, which is a command, uh, an imperative, follow me. And that's the word here. It's a command. It's follow me. Levi, follow me. That Levi immediately leaves his love of money, leaves behind his old life. He begins to follow Jesus immediately. Uh, He begins immediately to experience the joy of forgiveness, the joy of friendship with Jesus, the joy of fellowship with God. Uh, He's feasting with Jesus. Uh, His other sinful mates he's invited along as well. It's a picture of heaven. It's a picture of heaven's banquet on earth. It's a picture of what he's been saved into, that future. It's beautiful. Uh, It's the punchline of the whole chapter. Jesus commanding the most unscrupulous of sinners to repentance, and he repents and immediately starts rejoicing and enjoying Jesus as his saviour, enjoying rich, unfettered friendship with him. And so Jesus' absolute priority to seek and save sinners from God's end-time judgment What we've got here in chapter 5 is the most unlikely of people, the most unlikely of sinners who are turning to Jesus, who are coming to Jesus and beginning to taste and experience the goodness of that forgiveness. And so as we finish, the priority of Jesus' mission means uh, for some of us here this morning, uh, have you yet heard and obeyed Jesus' command to follow him, to save yourself Today, today. You might be here window shopping for God this morning, and that's good that you're here, it's great. Uh, But is it time to stop the window shopping and more intentionally investigate Jesus' claims? To look more closely at making a purchase, making a commitment to Jesus. So my question for you this morning is, what's holding you back? What's stopping you from doing what Levi did, from leaving whatever it is in your old life that's holding you back, leaving it behind And wholeheartedly following Jesus. The story of the leper shows you how to do it. How to save yourself today. Just got to recognise it's only Jesus who can heal you of your sin. Uh, To come to him urgently. uh, Pleading with Jesus. Knowing that there is no other name. That can actually save you and forgive you your sin. And notice no justifications. He prays simply. He knows he's got nothing to give, nothing to barter. There's no list of good deeds done. It's just an appeal to Jesus' mercy, Lord, if you will. And just just to know that at the end of a prayer like that will be those beautiful words from Jesus, I will. I will. And we can look back at the cross as that event where Jesus has done it where we can be assured for eternity that our sins are forgiven. But secondly, for those of us here who haven't, uh, who have already done that, uh, maybe we've been distracted, maybe for us that was a while ago, do we need to hear afresh Jesus' summons to full-time missionary service? 
I think we've got Peter, James and John's uh, call and commissioning. We've got Matthew's call and commissioning at the beginning and the end of this chapter because they capture uh, the only sort of Christian that there is in the world. Uh, It's the full-time Christian, the one who has been saved and entered, enlisted into Jesus' service to fish with Jesus for people, for other sinners. Of course, we're not summoned to be apostles. That's a very unique uh, thing that's going on here. But every saved sinner, uh, we are to enthusiastically rolling out of bed every morning to make Jesus' mission our priority for the day ahead. To place everything at Jesus' disposal in joyful response to his saving grace. Everything at his disposal. uh, Whatever that is that we've got to give. Time, money, talent. Uh, at CMS Summer School in Sydney, where Gita and I hang out, hung out for a week, uh, the Bible teacher there very helpfully, uh, I think, suggested that Christians in the West needed to start using a different word to describe themselves, to think of themselves, uh, that is missionaries. A Christian equals a missionary. That every Christian is an informal missionary. Some are set aside to be formal missionaries where they're publicly sort of sent out overseas to places like we're doing with Shana. But every Christian, we're all informal missionaries. We don't have to leave our secular careers behind to follow and fish with Jesus. Just need to be honest about those things uh, that are stopping us from speaking, honest about the idols in our lives that are holding us back from a more full-hearted, full-time service of Jesus and his people and getting the word out. And so we finished where we began, back in Dean's lounge room, which if you, you know, if you do get an invite to go there, it's it's a good place to hang out. Um, But I just want to, visiting people, uh, talking to people on the phone these last few weeks, there's been so many unexpected encouragements and just, you know, reminiscing together and laughing about stuff. Um, But it was just absolute um, uh, joy um, to hear not only Dean and Rhonda, you've come to you know, discover God's grace for their life, but they've actually got it. They've got the whole point of it all. Our highest priority should always be about getting the word out. Getting the word out. And my hope and prayer moving forward is that God's people here, that'll never ever stop being our highest priority. And I want to leave us with Dean's question, not to all Go and talk to Dean about this, all right? Talk with each other, okay? Leave us with Dean's question. Why aren't all churches on about getting the word out? And if that's the case, what should that mean for us? Let me pray. Father God, these, uh, these words are familiar words, but yet they're full of refreshment, of truth, of astounding grace, of just a beautiful reminder, Lord Jesus, of your authority and the power of your word to transform lives, to give us the confidence that you alone really do have the authority to forgive our sin and to give the sin of any sinner who comes to you humbly, repentant, looking for forgiveness. But more than that, to give us the courage, the courage to keep coming, to confessing our sin always 
and the courage to joyfully doing whatever we can with whatever time you've given us to toil together to just keep getting the word out to others. Thank you for the people you've put in our lives. May we never tire from praying for them. May we never tire loving them, forgiving them, persevering as we try to hold out the truth of Jesus to them. Father, please keep using us, I pray, uh, to be a people who uh, help get the word out to others that they too can be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.